Welcome to the July 2011 episode of the Harvard Medical Labcast, science that's changing your world. This podcast is brought to you by Harvard Medical School's Office of Communications and External Relations in Boston. I'm David Cameron. And I'm Alyssa Neller. This month, we'll explore how mice and rats sense predators. Research on these rodents could help us understand innate behaviors in humans. But first, here's a startling statistic. More than 20% of U.S. children between the ages of 2 and 5 are overweight or obese. I sat down with Elsie Tavares, an assistant professor at HMS, to discuss the daunting problem of early childhood obesity. Tavares is co-director of the Department of Population Medicine's Obesity Prevention Program at Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare. Here's an excerpt from our interview. So when we talk about early childhood obesity, mm-hmm. what are some of the statistics? What is the magnitude of the problem? So in the United States, I would say in the last 30 years, we've seen a pretty rapid increase in the prevalence of obesity up until about 2005 or six, when we seem to have reached a plateau in the prevalence of obesity. But even with that subtle stabilization of obesity prevalence, we still have very high rates. So among 6 to 12-year-old children, school-age children, we know that about a third of children are either overweight or obese. But it's not a problem that spares even the youngest of children. And even among children under 6 years of age, from birth to 5 years of age, we see pretty high rates of overweight um, in that age group. Is that something where um, many of those children are initially overweight and then they are able to lose that weight? Uh, It's a good question. So in almost all of the studies from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the national health statistics that are published pretty regularly, it doesn't look like birth weight, for example, has been increasing. In fact, it looks as if birth weight has remained pretty stable. It really is seeming to be that children are pretty much starting on average at a healthy weight, but weight gain and excessive weight gain is becoming of higher prevalence um, in the U.S., especially, I would say, in the first two years of life. And that's been more and more recognized recently. And is that weight gain, is that generally continued on even after the child reaches six? I think the evidence really does support that this excess weight gain early in life is associated with obesity in later childhood and even adulthood. And how does that break down in terms of the population? Is it pretty pervasive across the U.S., across different racial groups? Is it? So, you know, what interests me most about the trends, and especially more recent trends, is that even though we seem to have reached a plateau in obesity prevalence, the prevalence is still high and disproportionately high among some subgroups in the United States including African-American children and Latino children. And you can already see what those early life differences in obesity are going to mean for that child as they get older. They're more at risk for cardiovascular disease, for diabetes, for a whole host of issues that used to be adult problems that we're starting Mm -hmm. to see younger and younger. You recently sat on an Institute of Medicine committee that was committed to addressing some of these issues or taking mm-hmm. a look at some of these issues. Is there growing acknowledgement of these kinds of long-lasting and severe health problems associated with Yes, that? absolutely. So 
The Institute of Medicine report was commissioned by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation after a pretty clear recognition that for quite some time, our national efforts for obesity prevention have somewhat excluded children under six. What were some of the major recommendations to come out of this committee and um, mm-hmm. that were laid out in the report? So there were several. The charge for the committee was to propose, based on evidence, potential areas where policies could be developed in areas and settings where children spend the most time in. A lot of the recommendations are targeted to professionals who work with children, healthcare professionals, childcare professionals, education professionals. So one of the first recommendations was that pediatricians and other healthcare professionals who measure children should use the appropriate standards for tracking growth in children and gave some suggestions on how to detect a child who is gaining excessively. I'm just going to briefly kind of list off some of the other areas that the report targeted. So there was physical activity, healthy eating, marketing and screen time, and sleep. Right. Marketing and screen time. Can you talk a little bit about how those relate to obesity? And especially because we're talking about very young kids now. You know, it's, it's interesting because you would think that the younger children would be less exposed to television and that this wouldn't really be an issue. But actually, once you reach school age, children are in school, so they actually don't have as much opportunities to watch television as a child, a preschooler who might be home or might be in a childcare setting that allows television viewing. And the television that most children are exposed to contain toxic advertising that leads them to make purchase requests of their parents for a whole host of unhealthy foods and beverages. And were the recommendations focused on limiting exposure to this marketing and to television by providing the child with other activities, or did it actually focus on creating policies to limit that kind of marketing? Right. It was both. So... For children two to five years of age, the recommendation was actually very consistent with the Let's Move campaign, for example, or the American Academy of Pediatrics, where we were really proposing and recommending that children in that age group should not watch more than two hours of television per day. There was also a recommendation for limiting exposure to marketing, and the recommendation in that area was really targeted towards national regulation, which we haven't had yet in the United States and which exists actually in other countries outside of the U.S. Just returning to the point about uh, limiting TV to, I think Mm -hmm. you said no more than two hours a day for children two to five years old. I think that there are a number of things that this report about the setting the child is in how can the people who this report is targeting help parents to create these kinds of environments? That's a great question. And I would say that even though the report wasn't meant to directly target parents, it is meant to indirectly target parents through healthcare professionals and education professionals in childcare and in schools. And I would say that adults who work with children have this great window of opportunity when they interact with parents to set a good example. So, for example, we probably shouldn't have televisions in child care centers. We probably shouldn't have televisions in the waiting rooms of pediatric clinics or, you know, fast food establishments in hospitals where children come to seek their care. I mean, there's a lot that we can do to actually 
set a good example in these settings where children do spend their time so that what's translated to the parent is that these are the types of environments that they might also consider for their home. Follow your nose. That's great advice when you're searching out a restaurant in Little Italy or Boston's North End. And if you're a mouse, excellent advice for staying alive. Compared to humans, mice and other rodents are expert at sleuthing with their sense of smell. After all, mice have roughly 1,200 kinds of odor receptors, while we humans have a mere 350. And mice rely on some of these receptors to stay out of trouble. Now, reporting in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, Harvard Medical School researchers have discovered a single compound present in the urine of carnivores, a compound that spurs mice and rats to get lost fast. The rodents avoid areas doused with a chemical called, and it's a mouthful, 2-phenylethylamine, which is present in high concentrations in the urine of lions and tigers and bobcats and other predators. This is the first time that scientists have identified a chemical tag that allows rodents to sense a variety of carnivores from a safe distance. The team also identified an odor receptor that detects this chemical tag. According to senior author Stephen Liberlees, the next step is to uncover what happens between the odor receptor and the parts of the brain that tell the rodents to run away. Liberlees, who's an assistant professor of cell biology, hopes to shed light on a number of human diseases by probing the neural circuits that underlie innate behaviors. When these circuits malfunction, people may be prone to drug addiction or to stress and anxiety disorders. Ultimately, the goal is to use knowledge about neural circuits to develop new treatments for such conditions. Thanks for listening to the July episode. We'll leave you with a brief excerpt from the Institute of Medicine report on early childhood obesity. Contrary to popular belief, children do not grow out of their baby fat. Although few attempts have been made to prevent obesity during the first years of life, this period may represent the best opportunity for obesity prevention. This podcast is a production of Harvard Medical School's Office of Communications and External Relations, and we'd love to hear your comments on this program. Visit our podcast website at podcast.hms.harvard.edu and tell us what you think or read what other listeners are saying. In order to learn more about Harvard Medical School, our academic and research programs, and our affiliated hospitals and research institutes, visit hms.harvard.edu.